0: Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. Often, as we read about the lives of those servants who have gone on before us, specifically missionaries, we can forget that the reality is they were living everyday normal lives just like us. Uh, As they lived their lives each and every day, they had choices to make. They had decisions that had to be made. So, for instance, I don't know how many of you know how many of our great, famous missionaries had very different plans for their life than the plans that actually came to be. I don't know that many of you have heard of this particular missionary, but Alexander Mackey, he prepared for a time to go to Madagascar. Instead, he was redirected to Uganda, and there he was used to found uh, one of the most remarkable mission agencies in the world. But it wasn't his plan. William Carey, he had prepared to go to the South Sea, but instead he was redirected by God to India, which is where you would recognize him as having served. Judson, his desire was to go to India, but instead his course was redirected, famously as you well know, to Burma. Jim Elliott actually spent years, three years, preaching and working among the Kachua people, and then he decided to go out to the Hurani Indians who were much more savage and violent, as we well know. But many of us don't remember that he ministered for three years with another group before he went to the Hurani Indians. When David Livingston was 12, he heard an appeal for missionaries, and the need in China was great. And so he yielded to that call and began to prepare by Deciding to do uh, medical missions and prepared with his uh, medical studies. When he had finished his medical studies and was ready to go, the opium war had broke out in China and Englishmen were forbidden to come. They were not allowed into China. At the time, Robert Moffat was back in England and he was telling people about the opportunities in the South African mission. Livingston was fascinated by the opportunities, and so he said, why wait for this war to be over? I'm just going to go to Africa, and the rest is history. In each, life, in each life, you could see God divinely leading them to go to different places. Places that they did not initially intend to go, and do work that they did not initially intend to do. And what I want you and I to see together today in this text, as we walk through it together, is this. And it's fairly simple, very straightforward. You and I must trust and follow the direction of God through the word. God has spoken to us. You do know what to do if you engage God's word. The issue is, will we trust and follow? Will we do what we know we ought to do? Now, remember, as we engage this passage, there's always a context that is critical for us to understand as we engage a text. And Matthew's coming at uh, this particular account, this story with his overall perspective in mind. Remember, Matthew's gospel is the beginning of this greatest story. It's the beginning of the life of Christ. Matthew is writing to, in a sense, convince Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is this promised anointed one from the Old Testament. He is the king. He is the son of David. And he's bringing the kingdom of God into reality. He's the fulfillment of the promised deliverance for both Jews and in reality for Gentiles. This is Matthew's purpose as he writes. And as we'll see, I think, today throughout this final nativity account, Matthew is focusing our attention on two critical truths. He's going to give us a formula. We'll talk more about this in a moment. But he's going to give us this fulfillment formula three times. He uses it only ten times in the entire book. 28 chapters. This occurs ten times. Three in these ten verses. I think that's part of Matthew's point, right? I think that's where he's driving here is the fulfillment of the word of God. God is at work. God is accomplishing his purpose and God will absolutely triumph over evil. And one of the most heinous evils described is this man, Herod. And we'll see why in a moment, but God's going to triumph over all that. The second thing we see as we walk through is the, re- the appropriate response. If God's word is true and as God delivers it, what do we do with that? Well, the key is that we have to respond. And what I love about the entire account, Matthew 1 and 2, is we see over and over and over again in the life of Joseph. I doubt very much Joseph was a really complex character. That Joseph had a lot of things going on. Uh, Joseph wasn't an onion that needed to be peeled back to understand everything. Joseph was a carpenter. He was a laborer. He went to work. He built stuff. That's what he did. That's it. And he took care of his wife and he took care of his family. But when God came to him and said, do this, he just obeyed. And sometimes that simplicity to just obey is a gift. How do we respond to the word? How do you respond to the word? That's key. The call, I think, in this text is trust and follow the direction of God through his word. Now, the first thing that we'll observe, and this text breaks up very nicely, you have the first three verses, kind of the first focus, the second three, the third focus, and then the last four. And the reason it breaks up like that, I think, is because of those three fulfillment statements, those three fulfillment clauses. Again, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Initially, the wise men depart. Again, what's interesting here is even in that statement, Matthew's in some ways reminding us God's come to them in a vision, God's come to them in a dream, and he said what? Don't go back to Herod. And so what did they do? They obeyed. They went home a different way. Now they've departed. They followed the direction of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. And now three more times, Joseph is going to have a dream. In the dream, God is going to clearly communicate to him what he is to do. And it's fascinating, in every scenario, Joseph just gets up and obeys. Joseph doesn't wake up in the morning and say, wait, you don't understand. I've got a thriving business in Bethlehem. I can't lay that aside. I can't put that off. You don't understand. No, Joseph. Okay. This is what God said. I'll obey. We'll talk more about the implications of that in a moment. But God today is not speaking to you and me through dreams. Have you ever awakened in the morning and the dream you had was so vivid? Right? You think it happened? You know? Uh, Husbands, have you ever awakened in the morning and your wife had a dream about you that was so vivid and you're now in trouble? Right. Has that ever happened to you? Yes. Some of you wives, you just confessed because you looked right at it when I said that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Dreams can be really, really, really vivid. So much so in this case, Joseph has these dreams where God's communicating to him and he does it. He obeys. Now listen carefully to me today, and I want us to understand this. God is not communicating with us through dreams today, right? He, he tells us that. We, we talked about that as we walked through the epistle to the Hebrews. Remember, right at the beginning of that epistle, he says at the outset, chapter 1, verse 1, he says, listen, a long time ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So many ways. God used to speak in a whole variety of ways. Visions, dreams, angels, direct discourse, prophets, messengers. Right? A prophet would get a sign. God would say to this prophet, go out and grab some, some dirt from, from b- beside the sea. Right? Right? and come back and that's that's going to be a message to my people. God doesn't communicate that way anymore. How does God communicate to us? Through his son. He's spoken to us through Jesus and through the revealed word of God. 2nd Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds the believers of God's communication with them. He says, his divine power has granted to us All things. Everything that pertains to two things. Life and godliness. What's life and godliness? Life is salvation. Godliness is sanctification. Listen carefully to me. God has already communicated to you everything you need. To be a believer and to walk with Jesus. To follow Jesus. You have what you need. How do we have it? Well, he goes on. To say through what? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and virtue. And he goes on and expresses by which he's granted to us all these precious promises. All all of this that he's going to say in the verses that follow are coming from this reality. You have what you need for life and godliness through Jesus, through the word. Second Timothy chapter three, we looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago on Sunday night, but it's probably one of the key texts in the New Testament that reminds us of the sufficiency of the word of God. Scripture is enough, right? He tells us there, in Second Timothy 3:16, "All Scripture is breathed out by God." Now that, that's where we get the idea of inspiration. God's word is absolutely inspired. But listen to me. That's actually not Paul's point there. Paul's point is because the word is inspired. What is it? It's profitable. It's useful. It's helpful. It has the power to transform you. Look at what he says in the rest of that verse. It's profitable for teaching. This is step one in the transformation process. Listen. If you don't understand what to change or how to change, you're not going to change. That's where teaching comes. Right? Have you ever been hired at a job and you're working that job? And as you're working that job, somebody comes along and they say, hey, you're doing this all wrong. And you think in your mind, well, nobody taught me how to do it any different. Right? I'm I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to figure this out. You know? Well, then they tell you how to do it. Well, now, once you've been taught how to do it, you're supposed to do it that way. Right? This is what God's word does for us. It instructs you. Now, when you're instructed, how do you respond? Well, the second step is reproof. There's an understanding that the way I'm doing it isn't the way God said to do it. That's reproof. Correction is turning from my way and doing it God's way. And the fourth step in the process is training in righteousness. And that training is simply this. It's that process. Those three steps repeated over and over and over and over and over again. That is the same word that's used for training a child. All of you have engaged with very small little people, right? How many times do you have to tell them? And I use this all the time, but, but the plug in the wall. How many times do you have to tell them, don't touch that? Usually takes a while, right? And at some point there has to be maybe some motivation, you know, uh, for, for, for my generation, we, we, we're lazy. We invented something to stick in the plug and they can't get it out. You know what I mean? And they can't put their fingers in, they can't get that out. It's wonderful. But the generations before, they taught us don't touch, you know? Well, this is that word. This is what God is doing with you. How is God training you? It's through the word. You desperately need the word. Every day, Right? So this is God's plan and the plan is ultimately that you and I would be mature verse 17 that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Meaning you have what you need, exactly what you need for whatever life brings into your path. Whatever comes your way, you have what you need to respond. That is the power the ability of the word. That's why the word is so significant. So Dreams is not how God communicates to us, right? The Bible is sufficient. That's what we need. Now, for Joseph, God is communicating with him through an angel. And so the angel gives him this message in verse 13. He says, rise and take your family. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Now, several things are interesting here. First, there is a command there and it's not rise. The command is not get up. Uh, The command is take. Literally, he says, hey, wake up. And then he says, now, here's the command. Take your family to Egypt. And uh, I love the response of Joseph in these next couple verses. Verse 14, it, it appears, Matthew frames this as if Joseph gets up in the middle of the night and says to Mary, pack whatever we can fit on that donkey. You know what I'm saying? The one we rode over here. Pack whatever you can on that thing and we're going to Egypt. Um, and again, I, how did that conversation go? You know, I, 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 what, what is she saying? Well, you know, what are we going to eat? You know, should I make breakfast before we go? What, what are we, we going to do with the baby? What should I bring up the baby? Should I bring the swing? Should I bring the stroller? Should I bring, you know what I'm saying? And truthfully, folks, you think about it today. Sometimes all of that, all of that stuff, it prevents us from just simply obeying. You know, there was a degree to which Joseph and Mary, they didn't have really anything, really any substance, any stuff, any material wealth that they had to move. They literally could say, hey, grab the stuff that we need. We're going to Egypt. And literally, they went to Egypt because God told them to. They just obeyed. The plan from Herod is to destroy, it is to kill, as we'll see in a moment. It is to kill this baby. He is on the verge, is the idea. He's about to. This is a this is this is right on the fringe. This is happening. Verse 16, we'll we'll see it come to fruition. Now, one of the realities is four people, four Jews that would travel to Egypt, if you were a visitor with means. It would be a a decent trip. It would be a decent time. You could survive there well. But for many Judeans, traditionally, they would regard refuge in Egypt as the last possible option. Anything before that. But here, Jesus and his parents go to Egypt. If you think about it, Jesus begins his life as a refugee with mom and dad in Egypt. Fascinating to consider. Verse 14, Joseph obeys seemingly immediately. Some have commented Joseph may have set up a time when they could kind of sneak away without being noticed. But certainly from the text, the way it reads, they just got up and obeyed seemingly that night. Verse 15, we have uh, the family as they are leaving under the cover of darkness. Matthew reminds us this is actually a fulfillment. This is a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, uh, what's interesting here is a couple of things. We have this fulfillment kind of phrase throughout Matthew's gospel. And there's a little bit that goes into this phrase. There's actually three words in the original that kind of make up this phrase. The first word is the word to fulfill. The second word is a word that means what was spoken. The word that had been spoken, this will be fulfilled, and then he gives the final word, through. So Matthew's going to give that formula to us ten times in his gospel. Three times it occurs here in these last ten verses, which in my mind uh, is incredible. But he's making a point. His point is, despite Herod despite the efforts to destroy the Son of God, to destroy Jesus as a baby, God is superseding, and He is at work, and He will accomplish His purpose, and He will, He will protect His Son, even from this wicked Herod, which is an enormous issue that we'll talk about again, in a moment. So this formula occurs several times and each of these is quoting an Old Testament passage. Now, the third one is unique and again we'll talk about that in a moment. This first one is a quote from Hosea. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And Hosea here is of course he's alluding to the actual historical event of the Exodus and I don't think he's making a prophecy about the future. L- look at what he says. In Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, a couple of things. For us, we say in our minds, why is he describing or talking about Israel as if Israel is his son? I don't know about you, but that, that was the question that hit me as I was kind of walking through this. And if you look back all the way to Exodus chapter 4, as Moses is, being, is preparing to go back to Egypt to bring the people out, I want you to know what God says about Israel. Look at what he says in, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Again, he's speaking to Moses and saying, this is what I want you to go do. Here's what he says. Then you, Moses, you're going to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, there are several places throughout the Old Testament that that is the description that God gives of Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. And he goes on and he says, and I say to you, let my son go that you may or that he may serve me. If if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, remember, that doesn't happen in Exodus for several chapters. We go through nine other plagues before we get to the death of the firstborn son. But God tells Moses that's exactly where this is going to go before he ever goes back to Egypt. If you refuse to give me my firstborn son, I'll take your firstborn son. So this is what Hosea is referring to. So I think in Hosea's writing, chapter 11, verse 1 of Hosea, which is the quote in Matthew. Chapter 2, verse 15. This is the quote. I think it's historical. Now, Matthew takes that and applies it to Jesus. And I don't think the application is to say we are going to have a new exodus with Jesus. Some kind of make that the emphasis. I don't think that's the point. I think the point that, that Matthew is making with this quote is to say that God, God is preserving the life of his divine son. God is going to demonstrate that his divine sonship, God cares for Jesus as a father cares for his own son. That's the point. God is looking out for Jesus. God is protecting Jesus as any father would protect any son that he had the capacity to protect. And what I want you to note is this. Just as God cares for his son, he cares for you. He cares for us. He cares about your struggles. He cares about what's best for you. He cares when you go through hardship. He cares when you experience triumph. When you're rejoicing, He cares. Just as He cared for His own Son. And you and I can confidently rest in our God because He absolutely cares for you just as he did for Jesus. So first we see the response of God to this impending threat to Jesus. Second, we see the atrocities of Herod. Herod is a wicked and suspicious man. And immediately, verse 16, we see Herod, he is as mad as a human being can be. And the worst part about that is, is he has the power to do something about it. Right? So he figures out, that the the wise men have tricked him, deceived him, because they didn't come back. He said, guys, listen, come back, because I want to go worship this newborn king. So please come back, and they don't come back, and so now he's mad. So when he gets mad, what's the plan? The plan is, I'm just going to wipe out every child that's two years of age or under. Now, for many of you, when you have read that through your life, you think in your mind... Herod murdered every two-year-old boy and under in all of Israel. That is not true. That is not true. That is not what happened. And that is often the perception, and that's often where we hit a little bit of a bump with this text. Because in truth, secular history records no time when there was a a destruction of all of these two-year-old boys and under. There's no record of that. Josephus, the, one of the most noted historians of the time, he never records such a slaughter. Now, why? Why did it not happen? No, it happened. All right. It happened. But, so why doesn't, why doesn't Josephus mention it? Well, I want you to think for a moment about the size of Bethlehem at the time. Very likely, there is a population in this area of about a thousand people. A thousand. Do you know how many babies, boy, little boy babies, would have been born in a two-year period among about a thousand people? It wouldn't have been very many. Somewhere probably between 15 and 24 babies are born during this period, and half of those, maybe more, maybe less. Half of those would have been boys. So this slaughter of children likely would have been less than 20. Now, that doesn't mean that the 20 moms who lost a little boy were not upset. And and, and I think that that's portrayed by Matthew in his quote, which we'll talk about in a minute. But this is the reason that Josephus likely doesn't include it. Here's, Here's the truth. Herod was such a vile man. Herod was so wicked, he committed so many atrocities against the very people he was supposed to watch out for and lead that Josephus was recording all of those. This one paled in comparison with all those. Listen, this guy killed one of his own wives. He killed three of his own sons, one of them a week before he died. He just didn't want him to be in charge. This guy was vile. A couple of years before he died, there was a a story, there's an account given that he trapped over 300 Jewish leaders in one place with the intent of slaughtering all 300 of them. Now think about this. Which account, if you're Josephus, do you include? The death of 15 or 20 little boys in Bethlehem and its surrounding area? Or the attempt to kill 300 Jewish leaders? The death of this man's own wife, the death of his son, what do you include? If you have a limited space, a limited ability to write, what do you include? And that's, that's in reality probably the reason Josephus leaves this out. Josephus is writing to a group uh, that, that in many ways is Greco-Roman audience. They would have cared very little about these deaths. Uh, It was said of the Romans at this time, a Roman father, when he had a, a son, when he had a child, if he decided not to pick it up off the floor, they would just let it lay there and die. So this was his audience and likely this is the reason Josephus does not include this. But that doesn't mean the event didn't happen. Matthew records something for us, and he records it. It, This is not something Matthew's using as an illustration. This happened. It just wasn't on the scale of many of Herod's other atrocities. Herod's legacy is fascinating in many ways. People said, Herod, he stole the throne like a fox. He ruled like a tiger, and he died like a dog. The Jewish kingdom was divided among his three sons, Philip, Herod Antipas and Archelaus. Herod was a vile man. He's the picture of evil throughout this entire account here in chapter 2. From a human perspective you look at these horrific acts and in some ways it's hard for us to even understand how such wickedness could exist. Uh, For us one of the keys to remember is that evil ultimately evil will not triumph over God's plan. Evil will not triumph over good and what's right. And yet at times our world is consumed with wickedness and depravity. Frankly, you look at events in in the world and you say, man, our world is just so lost and misguided. As Americans, though, truthfully, we have a lot for which to be thankful for. We have magnificent privilege, the grace, the freedoms that God has gifted to us Frankly, in human history, they're almost unimaginable. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, we get bogged down in little, little, little things that just pale in comparison with atrocities like this. And yet, consider in some respects the genocide of the past generation through something like abortion. Statistics have been given that are, they're staggering. Between 50 and 60 million children killed. Folks, that is a genocide. Anywhere else that that humanity exists, if you killed 50 or 60 million people, it would be horrific. And yet that's what's occurred in the last 60 years, 50 years in our country. It's it's mind-boggling. But things like the Holocaust, how horrific of an event. Folks, this is the character of humanity down through history. This happens. Herod's another example of humanity completely out of control. And yet, Matthew gives us the quote, the response, verse 17 and 18. Again, we have that phrase. This was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet, through the prophet Jeremiah, And then he reminds us of this quote. Now, we read this a few moments ago. And if you look carefully at the the context of Jeremiah 31, believe it or not, every other verse in the chapter is great news. Uh, Every other verse in the chapter is hopeful. Every other verse in the chapter is about restoration and forgiving the sins of the people and, and blessing them with peace and prosperity. 1 to 14, 16 to 20, all of it. Verse 15, right in the middle. You have this verse on the grief. The grief that the people in their present reality would have been experiencing at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. You see, what would happen was, as they came into Jerusalem, the Babylonians had carried off these Jewish children. Guess where they had to go through? Ramah, six miles north. So they'd march right through Ramah. And as they marched through Ramah, guess what? All the moms, all the ladies are watching in some respects, their future, be hauled off to another place. What do they do? They weep. The grief, in some respects, is overwhelming. This is the description of Jeremiah 31.15. They're overwhelmed with grief. And once again, this is an historical account. This is history. This happened. And Matthew takes that account and he applies it to what happens for all these moms who lose their two-year-old boys and under at this killing of Herod, destroying these boys to try and get Messiah. So it's natural in some respects for Matthew to personify these grieving moms as Israel, Rachel weeping for her children. As Jeremiah notes, even in the face of seemingly overwhelming grief, loss, hardship, there's hope. If you read Jeremiah 31, it is a chapter of hope. It's a chapter of future. It's a chapter of forgiveness. It's a chapter of blessing. And yet in the midst of that, there's real loss. There's real grief. There's real feelings at times of being completely overwhelmed with my scenario. And yet, as believers, we know there's more. This is the hope that we enjoy because of this child. As Matthew reminds us in chapter 1, he is coming to forgive our sins, to die for our sins. There's hope that cannot be expressed in that. He goes on. In concluding this last section, He moves past Herod. Herod dies here initially in verse 19, and the family is going to settle now in Nazareth. Verse 19, he says, but when Herod died, an angel again of the Lord, he comes, he appears in a dream to Joseph, and he says, verse 20, rise, take the child again and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Now, he doesn't initially give specifics. Just go to the land of Israel, the one who sought the child's life, he's dead. And he rose, he took the child and his mother, and he went back to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And we'll talk about that in a minute. There's wisdom in that. And so instead, he's again warned in a dream. He withdraws to the district of Galilee, and he went and he lived in a little city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets collectively might be fulfilled that he would be called Nazarene. Now, a couple of things are important, again, in this text. Again, God, does. we don't immediately get specifics for Joseph. And yet, in the midst of being in Egypt, God protects them, cares for them. Likely they were in Egypt a couple of years. Jesus is likely born 6-7 B.C. Herod dies in 4 B.C. So two three years, and they're coming back. Jesus is a toddler now. They are coming back. From Egypt potentially they have another little one another two little ones we don't know that we don't have those specifics that's not significant to the account but this little family is now coming back to Israel at the direction of the Lord but Joseph wisely doesn't go back to Bethlehem he doesn't go back because the son Archelaus of Herod is ruling there now remember three of Herod's sons take over his throne the kingdom is split three ways Archelaus is by far the worst. Archelaus is such a rascal. He is such a wicked man. Rome removes him from power. Archelaus, when he first takes over, there's a massacre of 3,000 people. And he does that just to show he's the boss. He's so vile, he is removed shortly, not long after... Joseph and his family would have come back to Israel. But again, Joseph receives instruction. He receives direction. Don't go there. Go to this region of Galilee. And when they go to Galilee, they settle in this little town, Nazareth. And Matthew says this is so that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Now, where does our Old Testament tell us that Jesus would be called a Nazarene? This is the tricky part. There is no text that specifically makes that comment. So there's a lot of guesses that have been offered to what this is. Uh, Numerous, a couple of texts are offered, two of them in Judges, two of them in Isaiah. Uh, The one in Judges is speaking about Samson and his dedication from his birth as a Nazarene. And we'll talk more about that, what that being a, the Nazarite vow, what that's all about in a moment. The second one comes from Isaiah. And Isaiah there, a couple of of cases. First, in Isaiah 11, you remember this? There's going to be a branch that comes up from Jesse. Now this word branch has been understood uh, kind of because of language and the way it works from Hebrew to Greek and all that. That Jesus would be known as the branch man uh, because of his connection to the family as is prophesied. Of Judah that he would come up as this branch from this trunk that's been cut off if you remember that passage in Isaiah 11 some perceive that's what's being described some perceive that again Nazareth Nazareth is being described uh, from judges by the prophets if you recall in the New Testament oftentimes our Bible is just known as the law and the prophets so, everything from Joshua on is all the prophets. Judges would have fit in that classification. So, that's how Judges fits in as a prophet. In Matthew, Matthew, some perceive, is combining the Hebrew word nazir, which is rendered as hagias, which is holy, uh, with Nazarite, and second, that Jesus was going to be known. Uh, in his ministry as the Holy One of God. So the connection of a Nazarite in the New Testament being Hagias holy, he's the Holy One of God, this is the connection. A third option some people give is that Nazareth was a despised city. And Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus being despised and rejected. And so Jesus, the connection is that because he was from this despised city, Nazareth, he'd be known as a Nazarene and thus he would be despised. Now, as you can tell, how do we know which of those is the case? I don't know that we do. And truthfully, I don't know that we need to, because if you note Matthew's statement, specifically in verse 23, look at what he says, so that... What was spoken by the prophets? Matthew is acknowledging I'm compiling a perspective from the prophets, plural. And the perspective is that Jesus will be a Nazarene. And so, to some extent, certainly, each one of those can be argued. But the truth is this Jesus will be the Holy One of God. He will be despised. He is the branch of Jesse. All of those are true. And so in a sense, the prophets collectively speak and kind of inform for us Matthew's understanding of these combined ideas that make Jesus a Nazarene. As you walk through this text, it amazes me Joseph's response. Three times in chapter 2 in these verses God comes to him in a dream and says here's the word of the Lord an angel comes, here's the word of the Lord and Joseph obeys. In chapter 1 he does the exact same thing. It's a reminder to us of how we respond to the word. Now, I don't know about you but sometimes I think for us in the 21st century we think in our minds I wish God would come to me like he did Joseph. Right? Right? I wish God would come to me and he would say, go do this. And then I would go do it. Folks, to be honest with you, you, you have far more information, instruction than Joseph ever had. God has communicated to you through Jesus, through the word, in a way that likely Joseph would have longed to have. And yet he didn't. And when God spoke, when God addressed him and told him what to do, Joseph simply obeyed. As you engage the word of God, what is your response? Listen, so many times for us in our world, in our day, we approach the word in this way. That's not what it means to me. I I, I don't think that's the right interpretation. I I don't think I need to do that. I don't think think that's what my response is supposed to be. Listen carefully to me. Don't argue with the word. Obey. Obey. God has spoken. Will you follow? God, God has spoken. Do you trust what he says? Folks, the truth is we live in a world that is convinced they know better than God. And you know what? If we're not careful as believers... We're exactly the same. Uh, I know the Bible says that, but no. (laughs) We can't do that. How do we, how do you respond to the word? The reality is we must trust and follow the direction of God. That he gives clearly through the word. And here's the reality today. You will not and you cannot do that if you don't know it. If you have never turned in faith to Jesus, understanding that He is our only hope, He is our right, our only right, our only ability to have a relationship with God. He's the only way to come to the Father. He he told His disciples that. Right? If you don't have a relationship with Him today, if you don't know Him personally, you cannot, you will not do this. It's just the way it is. Have you ever accepted Jesus? Accepted all that He is? Accepted the free gift of rescue from your sin? If not, you can today. And you must. or this cannot and will not be a reality in your life. David Brainerd, uh, known for his mission work with the Indians, the American Indians, Uh, As he initially went in and began to work among them, he could tell the contention, the opposition that was there. And, And in truth, early on in his interaction with them, their goal, their intent was to kill him. One night as he was in his tent, they surrounded his tent with tomahawks. And as they pulled up the side of his tent to go in and actually kill him. He was there in the middle of that tent, sitting on his knees in prayer for them. Now, in truth, that meant nothing to them. But right behind him, there actually was a rattlesnake in that room. And the rattlesnake was crawling across his tent. The rattlesnake came right behind where David Brainerd was praying, and it went up into a striking position behind him and sat there for a moment. David Brainerd continued to pray. A moment later, the snake relaxed and crawled back out of the tent on the other side. That night, that moment, those Indians decided there was something different about this guy. The great spirit, the great something was with this guy. Later on, David Brainerd, he found out that the Indians had seen this and that the Indians had been there to kill him. God used that experience as a door, an opening to share the power of Christ. And David Brainerd had an incredible pathway into the American Indian's culture because of God's work, God's protection, God's guidance in his life. He was trusting, resting in God. Are you? Are we? As God speaks to you through the Word, do you trust? Are you resting? Or do you kind of regularly pull back and say, "I don't know. I don't know if that fits my perception. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I want to do that." How do you respond to God's truth? By God's grace, we can trust, and we must follow.